For more than a hundred years, starting in the 1830s, the center of downtown Boston was Scholey Square. You could get your picture taken. If you wanted to, you could visit the first dentist who used ether to reduce pain when he worked on your teeth. But in the 1960s, they tore down Scholey Square, tearing down 1,000 buildings and displacing tens of thousands of people. They did it to build government center. Now, in February, Boston is a cold and windy city. And inside of government center, inside the plaza that they want to call a town square, it is colder and windier than anywhere else in all of Boston. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about the architecture of architecture. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. One day, Pawan brought a book home from school and read me a couple of poems from it. That was the first time I'd ever heard my son read out loud. Those words came from Asta, mom to Pawan. Pawan was one of the students enrolled in the accelerated learning courses that we at Chaining Stories run to help struggling public school students in Nepal learn how to read and do math. My name is Renee and I'm the founder of Changing Stories and we exist because there are 617 million kids and youth in low-income countries around the world who can't read or do basic math, even though most of them are already in school. We're on a mission to change that. We're on a mission to end the learning crisis and make sure that kids like Pawan get an opportunity to learn and complete an education. If, after you're done listening to Seth, of course, you want to learn more about Changing Stories and our work, you can hop on over to www.changing-stories.org. Architecture means two different things in the way we're going to talk about it. One is the actual work of drawing up the plans and certifying them so a builder can build them. But the other one talks about the system the system of a building, the system of a culture, the system of how we make decisions. And I use architecture that way all the time. I want to talk about how we ended up with the architecture we have, because there's a couple surprising forces, and those forces are actually applicable to a huge range of cultural change. I'm not a traditionalist when it comes to the built world. I think that we have made huge strides in making buildings more comfortable and more efficient and sometimes more beautiful. But it is also true that there are tons of examples in every direction of architects run amok, of buildings that might have pleased someone but don't actually achieve their stated desired use. How does this happen? If you wanted to change the built world, the world we all live in, the world we can't help but see, the world of our home and our office and everything in between, how exactly would you do it? Well, let's start with this. There are about 190,000 licensed architects in the United States, and every year, 5 to 10% of them quit in disgust or retire. And every year, architecture schools produce five or 10,000 new graduates. So over time, over 10 or 20 years, all of the architects basically are replaced. It turns out that architecture school 
is a really highly leveraged place to change the way architects think. And the way architects think changes what gets built. So what kind of person wants to be a teacher, a professor, a lecturer at an architecture school? My guess is that person likes progress in architecture. They don't just want to teach how architecture worked in the 1800s or the 1900s. Next, let's think of who are the most famous architects? Who drives someone to become an architect? Well, in law for a really long time, it was clearly Perry Mason. Perry Mason was the archetype for the young man who wanted to become a lawyer, a trial lawyer, who would defend only the innocent and always win. But in architecture, you've got Frank Lloyd Wright. You've got Howard Rourke from The Fountainhead. You've got Michael Graves from The Teapot. There's the late Zaha Hadid with her flowing, sensuous architecture. And there's Frank Geary, who used technology to build buildings that ripple. All of them are known for challenging convention. All of them are heroes because they make it worth being an architect because you can put your stamp on something. We know who made this building. But it's worth noting that with the exception of Michael Graves, all of these architects are also known for being not particularly easy to work with and for creating buildings that aren't optimized for other performance metrics like efficiency or comfort. Famously, Frank Lloyd Wright houses leak and are hard to live in. So we have this model of the heroic architect. Let's add to it the fact that architects don't get paid very much. If you make $90,000 a year as a trained architect with an advanced degree, you're in the top 10% of all architects. That doesn't compare to lawyers or doctors. How do architects get compensated? Often on a percentage of how much the building costs to make. So there's an incentive to build bigger buildings, more expensive buildings, and also an incentive to be known. How do you get known? You get known by entering competitions. You get known by building stunning buildings. And so a cycle was put in place, a cycle that began with Frank Lloyd Wright and continues to this day, which is that the way to be a great architect is to be a different architect, a new architect, an architect who isn't building a version of the old building. And then there's the clients of architects. Clients of architects sometimes want to just get the whole thing over with and get back to business. We'll talk about that in a second. But then there are clients who want to put a stamp on what they are building. And so it's easier to make a big splash if you have a famous architect building you a famous building. But many of the big buildings, and this is a different way that architecture has changed, are designed to be big buildings so that the person who owns the office building can make a lot of money. What is that person's incentive? They want a building that is efficient so that they can run it at low cost over time, and they want a building that is easy to rent because empty spaces just cost money. They don't make money. So there is no accident around the fact that most of the buildings you see that have been built in the last decade are mostly glass on the outside and 
delightfully, are more energy efficient. Why? Why glass on the outside? Because glass on the outside is the cheapest way to build a big building. And it turns out because it's the style, because people like us work in buildings like this, it's also the easiest to rent. And so a ratchet occurred, a ratchet toward more and more efficient buildings, certified L-E-E-D, perhaps pronounced LEED, and these LEED certified buildings, platinum or whatever, give clients and architects a way to compete with each other on an easily understood metric. Each of these foundational principles of architecture compound on one another. Teachers teach a certain point of view, a way of approaching architecture. Examples get built that reinforce that, giving teachers more ways to teach. Architects who get their interesting buildings built are seen as a success. They're able to publish their work. They're able to earn status and esteem from their peers, which gets them more status and esteem from clients. And so it repeats forward and forward. Imagine what would have happened instead if after Frank Lloyd Wright, the academic community, the people who determined what was going to get taught, decided that what they wanted to teach was utility, that what they wanted to teach was efficiency, elegance, the delight of the people who are in the building, the efficiency of building and maintaining the building, the longevity of the building, that if they had taught all of those things, which I am not arguing for, I'm just pointing it out, just a hundred people, a thousand people, 3,000 people could have changed the entire built world around us because that was one of the key levers of how we ended up with the buildings we ended up with. But I want to talk about a second one that goes in the opposite direction. Some of you, as you heard this, could have been thinking about McMansions. McMansions are an abomination against design and style and elegance and history and comfort and utility and efficiency all in one. How did we end up with this? How did we end up with these horrible buildings that were built by people who had plenty of money, but apparently willfully ignoring taste? Well, the McMansion Hell blog, which is in the show notes, goes into great detail about this, but here's the essence of it. The number three TV network on cable, bigger then CNN is HGTV. And the people behind HGTV are proud of the fact that each show reminds you of the other. That it is difficult, they say, that when you've got people addicted to stuff, to keep making shows that are basically repeats of each other, but still don't bore people. And the essence of these shows is this, that it is possible for untrained people without a lot of money to go into a house, make changes to the inside of the house, and do it in a way that causes the value of the house to go up dramatically, so dramatically that you can sell it at a significant profit. And because your investment is leveraged by a mortgage, that profit is multiplied, and then you can do it again. This lined up with a boom among people who were middle class or upper middle class who had money to spend on real estate. And they were thinking about the money they were spending on real estate as an investment, not a home to live in. Combine these things along with the fact that the United States has plenty of land and that the suburbification 
Is that a word? That the growth of the suburbs was relentless during the 90s, the 2000s, and the last decade. It meant that a lot of new construction is going on. New construction, new home construction isn't driven by architects. It's driven by builders who only make a profit if they sell a house. It's driven by the people who are busy specking these expensive houses. Now let's compare what I just said to the history of Levittown. After World War II, a whole bunch of families were being formed and potato fields in Long Island were being plowed over to build the cheapest, fastest houses that they could. These houses, sometimes known collectively as Levittown houses, were cookie-cutter houses because the people who were buying them were looking for a way to conform as long as it gave them an entry into the path toward the American dream. This isn't going to change architecture because the people who were buying these houses were not seen as style makers or profit makers. But HGTV changes this model 50 years later when they're talking about getting a custom house built or perhaps flipped. Kate Wagner of McMansion Hell points out what happens next. What happens next is the builder, eager to build another building, listens to the client. The client, who has listened to HGTV, designs the building from the inside out. Cathedral ceilings in the bathroom, please. A slightly bigger kitchen. I like this kind of window, and I like that kind of window, and I need to be able to see this from there. And of course, please chop down all the trees as you prepare my lot. What ends up happening is the architect, the one who didn't become a star architect, the architect who is simply looking to make a living in a very competitive, grueling profession, takes all of that stuff that's inside the building and has to add it up to make a building that can actually be built on a budget because there's always a budget when we're building something. The end result are buildings that look ridiculous from the outside, pillars where there shouldn't be pillars, cornices where there shouldn't be cornices, a roof line that makes no sense, windows that don't match, one element after another that doesn't work compounded by the fact that because there's a budget, the materials that are used are the cheapest available in every corner of the building because it's built to flip, not built to live in. If it was built to live in, people would have done it more organically. They would have thought about what exactly they needed and built something that they could love for years at a time. So yeah, architecture matters. But when we think about the architecture of architecture, it's interesting to think about who it's for and what's it for. The work the architect is doing, is it to please the professor she had a few years ago? Is it to please the partner who hired her? Is it to please her colleagues? And the person who's hiring the architect, are they looking for that building to get written up? Are they looking to get bragged about? Are they concerned about 10 or 20 or 30 years later what it's going to be like to walk through that plaza in February? Or if the architect isn't the driver of the situation, who exactly is the builder working for? And when the builder is working for the resident, the client, the person who's specking the building, does that person have a clue about what they actually want for the long haul? Or are they simply following the instructions of a TV show that's supposed to be sort of fictional? 
that it's supposed to be entertaining, not instructional. And so when we think about the world we live in, not just the built world, but who's making the next software that we're going to use, who's designing the next restaurant menu we're going to eat from, over and over again, the architecture of the system the who's it for, the what's it for, the intentional action, the rewards of the people playing in the system, those are the ones that are driving our experience with the end product. So yeah, if you wanted to change the entire built world, it would help to persuade 500 pioneers in the education of architects to like one thing over another. And if you want to come at it a different way in the direction of money and customers, it would be really useful to build a TV network that only reaches the smallest viable audience. The most popular shows on HGTV only get seen by four million people. The typical, a million and a half. But those million and a half people, the ones who are spending a lot of time and energy watching these shows, they are being taught something. And you only need 10,000 of those people to go out and buy a custom house to create the convention of the McMansion. Because once it is a convention, people like us, we live in places like this. House owners like us sell houses like this. 10,000 people is enough to create an entire genre. The smallest viable audience is always about this. We can never persuade 300 million or 3 billion or 7 billion people to do something. But what we can do is look at the architecture of the system, figure out who the highly leveraged people are in that system, and give them a series of incentives and a way of doing their work that spreads. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Creative isn't who you are, it's what you do. Along the way, creativity has gotten a mystical rap, as if it's some sort of gift. It's not. It's a choice. It's a skill. If you have a job where you get to decide what you do, you are a creative, a working creative, and you can get better at it. I'm thrilled to say that the Creatives Workshop is back, the most active of all the Akimbo workshops. It's about people who want to level up and make a difference with their creative work. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. Thanks for listening. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button while you're there. You can also check out the show notes. Bonjour, it's Jonas from France. I have one quick story and one question. About car names, I learned the French car maker Peugeot chose at the beginning a naming convention for their models with a zero in the middle, like the 302. It was because the zero was originally the hole for the manual crank. And then it was before the electric starter literally kickstarted the automobile industry. So yes, I agree. Car names were mostly an engineering decision. And my question is, uh, in Europe, I see a non-trivial amount of people having an Apple logo sticker on the back of their car, usually normal basic car. I interpret this as I need a car, 
I don't exactly know how great cars should be, but I aspire to project something better. Uh, from marketing point of view, how do you see this behavior? Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Jonas. I remember having an Apple logo on my car in 1984. And fast forward, I remember 20 years ago going to a conference where for the first time I saw someone having stickers all over their laptop. Maybe there was even one for a brand of car. So what's this all about? What's the purpose of the sticker? Well, in the case of the car companies, putting their, quote, sticker on the back of the car you just bought is a way of them identifying you as someone who has the latest model or not the latest model, as someone who has one level of status or not, as someone who belongs to one tribe or another. The Ford people still argue with the Chevy people. The internal combustion people are arguing with the electric people. We send a message when we drive our car around. And the audacious thing that Apple did in 1984, in addition to shipping the Mac, is that it shipped with a sticker. Where to put the sticker? Well, putting the sticker on your car said, don't judge me by my transportation. Judge me by the digital tool I am choosing to use. That Apple's unstated motto for years and years is, we help people develop good taste about digital interaction. That was their mission. That's the change they made in the world. And if you had good taste and wished other people would also get the good taste thing, well, there it is, the sticker on your car. I'm an insider. People who get the joke know why I have this on my car. People who don't ignore it. It's a way of labeling. It's a signal. And then as the laptop became something that wasn't perfect and precious, but sort of disposable, as it became something we used in public, the stickers on the laptop went in the other direction. They said, well, yeah, I have to have a laptop. It is my portal into the world. But here, judge me by these other things, these stickers I'm choosing to put on this modern-day automobile. Because we are busy judging people, putting them into groups, putting them into categories, who's in, who's out, who's with us, who's against us. We've been doing that for a really long time. And now it's come down to a sticker that you can get for a penny. Hello, Seth. This is Lewis from Los Angeles. I just finished watching your spinnaker in, in Prodigy and online games videos that you posted on your website. Thank you very much for that. I never knew you were such a creator of content that myself and people of my age, I'm in my early 50s, grew up with and have participated as a consumer in enjoying and experiencing from the work of many people like yourself. I also watched Halt and Catch Fire, and watching your videos reminded me of that show, one of my favorite TV series on Netflix. I'm wondering if you've watched it. I do want to watch it again, and it goes through the similar timeline of sounds like from your personal experience. My question is, what lessons would you would a person take away from a show like that? A very entertaining and designed for audience engagement, but what can we learn from that? I learn a lot from you, and I, I look for content elsewhere similar to what you provide and offer. I want to see what your perspective. Thanks for all you do, and thank you for taking my question. Thanks for this. I'm glad that my videos resonated with you. I'm not much of a TV person, so I haven't watched that show. 
But I am thrilled to say that in the show Silicon Valley, they even mentioned Yo-Yo Nine. So I guess my legacy is assured. Here's the thing. Most of the inputs that we get in our lives do not come from people who are building something or who have built something. They come from critics, metacritics, critics of critics. They come from people talking about how they are engaging with the things that someone else built. So the stories of builders, all the way back to Soul of a New Machine by Tracy Kidder or his other book, House, these books, these stories, these shows in which we hear about what it's like in the moment to deal with constraints, to make choices, to act as if, to be an imposter, inventing a future that you haven't lived in yet. I find these wildly inspiring. I like the ones that don't work. I like the ones that do. Because we learn a lot about what it means to be inside of it. I'm reading Analogia, a great book by George Dyson, largely about his dad, Freeman Dyson. Freeman Dyson left for five years from one of the greatest jobs in the world at Princeton to work on, ready for this, a rocket ship powered by nuclear weapons. Now, I'm sure there were people on the project who thought it was the greatest idea they ever heard. It's entirely possible that one day we will figure out how to do it without blowing up the planet. But for those five years, the building, working on it, being inside of it, making the choices, it's thrilling. I recommend it to everyone. If you get a chance to build something, to be really in it, to be consumed by the thing you are building, it makes you feel alive in a different way. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere. You know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.